we'll do it like that. Uh, yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're starting in verse 7, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. You can follow along in your own Bibles if you'd like. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, Paul says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would grant us, by your Spirit, this eternal perspective, this vision of heavenly things, that we would see the unseen, that we would be able, by your Spirit's power, to, to see this world and our lives in it as the temporary things that they are, preparing us for eternal things that are beyond our imagination. And we ask that you would uh, give us ears to hear, that you would anoint our our hearts so that we can understand and receive what the Spirit would say to the church. And we, we ask that, uh, that this eternal weight of glory, this exceeding glory, would be glimpsed today by those of us that are looking not for the things which can be seen, but the things that are eternal. Bless us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you want the big idea right here at the beginning, the thing you're going to hear more than a few times today and even in future sermons, it's in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Uh, he says it here in verse 16. He, he said it last week in verse 1. We saw in verse 1, he says, we have received mercy. We do not lose heart. Uh, it's not only a major point of this chapter, it's a major theme of the entire book of 2 Corinthians. We do not lose heart. And then verses 8 through 12, which I just read, it, it gives plenty of reason to despair. There Are there trials and temptations, we sing? And the answer, it's not in the original hymn, but we might sing, oh yeah. Um, you know, that, does it look sometimes like our lives are absolutely falling apart? Yeah, yeah, it does. But, and Paul says that's on purpose, actually. There's design behind that. And we do not lose heart. Paul says that his life is a kind of death. That sounds like someone who might be tempted to lose heart, but it isn't so. We do not lose heart. 
Even though the outward man, that's the whole life that you can see, is perishing, that's not a reason to lose heart because the things which are seen are only temporary. There's things that last longer than the visible world. The things which are not seen are eternal. I hope that Paul's view of life and ministry is contagious, that this becomes for us not just a description of Paul, a unique person to be sure, but a prescription for each one of us. That we come to see this not just as his life, but ours as well. This chapter defines the eternal perspective that we are supposed to have as believers. And, and that perspective of seeing the unseen, of, of not discarding but, or, or even discounting the visible world, but seeing for what it really is. This, this is not just a set of Christian rose-colored glasses that turns everything nice. Uh, it's not twisting your perspective that so that pain becomes enjoyable or impossible. Uh, it's not something like that. It's not mind over matter. It's not your best life now. It's hope. It's Christian hope is what Paul is talking about. It's the life of Christ being formed in you, affecting, having a profound effect on your perspective, transforming your perspective, so that the unseen realities of heaven and eternity have a greater effect on your life, your well-being, how you see yourself, the world, and your work in it, and how you make decisions has a greater effect on those things than the temporal de decaying things of this world. It's the truth of chapter 3, verse 18, which we read uh, before. We, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. That transformation, leveling up from glory to glory to another glory, and it keeps on going. That, for Paul, looks like a series of deaths and resurrections that our passage in chapter 4 talks a lot about. Last week and the week before, we talked a lot about glory, and we find that word again in our text today. But now we see it with a twist. In chapter 3, we talked about the glory of the gospel being superior to the glory of the law. And how the glory of the gospel, unlike the glory of the old covenant that came on Mount Sinai, it actually transforms us into the image of Christ. And in the beginning of chapter 4, there was that part about the glory of Christ who is the image of God shining on the one who believes. Beautiful stuff. But now we come to kind of a turn in the road, something unexpected, where Paul says that our affliction, which he calls light, though I'm not sure any of us would agree, is what is working out that glory in us. The sufferings that seem opposed to anything glorious are exactly what is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Knowing this and believing this, we do not lose heart. This is the main point. We're beginning with the end. Do not lose heart. Do not grow weary in doing good. Let's follow Paul towards this peace through the paradox of earthen vessels, persecutions, a perishing outward man. Next week in chapter 5, we'll talk about tents. They're not permanent. That's kind of what you need to know about tents. In all of that, we see there's glory. There's glory that works in conjunction with these things, this, these temporary, perishable items of our life. And it's all by design. Look back at verse 7. It says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. You might read this with an emphasis on the first word. 
He's been talking about the extent of the glory of God that is available to us. It's amazing. It's shocking. It's overwhelming. It's transformative. So much better than all that Moses stuff. But this treasure, that glory, it's stored in unusual containers. I, I, I picture like, you know, five-star chef kind of stuff that you can't afford being stored in Tupperwares and just kind of, you know, put in the back of the fridge. It's like, I don't know if that honors the meal to the fullness of what was designed. But he says, you know, this glory is being put in these these clay jars. Sounds like a good band name, maybe. Um, but putting putting treasure into a clay pot, this isn't normal. Uh, this isn't the normal way you store treasure, but it's intentional by the one who owns the treasure. God's purpose is shown to us right here. It's spelled out. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. It was never God's intention to have his glory be outdone by the container he puts it in. In fact, he wants everyone to be sure that the excellent power is all his, not the jar, not the clay. Now, be sure you notice this. Paul isn't somehow denigrating just like the physical body. Um, you know, this tent that we live in, which we'll get into next week. It's true that Adam was made of dirt, so are you. Uh, from dust we came, from dust we shall return. And in this sense, our bodies are these jars of clay for the treasure of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but, the, but the unimpressive mud-made jars that Paul is talking about is not just our human bodies. He's talking about the whole of our lives and ministries and all their fragility. How we are, as he so eloquently states in verse 8, hard-pressed on every side, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. That's not a biological discussion. It's a spiritual discussion. The death that's working in him is not just, well, I'm getting older and I'm feeling pretty bad, but that works out for you well. That's not what Paul is saying at all. He's saying, I'm living a life that is cross-shaped. I'm dying daily for the benefit of the church of God. He's, he's having a spiritual discussion here. The jar of clay in which the spirit lives is our life lived towards Christ, where the life of the crucified Christ is being formed in us. It all looks like dirt. It's all so very breakable. It's all so very of the earth, which itself groans under the weight of the fall and hopeful anticipation of redemption. It's not just that we aren't as pretty as, we're, as we were when we were 22. That's not what Paul's talking about with jars of clay. That's not the purpose of the discussion. We're corruptible at a much deeper level. And the pains and difficulties of life aren't just about aging or something. Now, going back to this point, a clay jar is a strange place to put eternal treasures in. The kind of ministry the Lord chooses in order to have his gospel proclaimed is counterintuitive to the world's way of thinking. Not only counterintuitive, but antithetical to the world's way of thinking. That's why the messengers of the gospel are pressed down, persecuted, and struck down. Someone's doing the pressing, persecuting, and striking. And all of this was very real for Paul. That was his life. And he's, he's uh, continuing to harp on this theme all the way through the book, warming up to that famous passage in chapter 12 where Christ himself speaks to Paul and tells him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul's response to this in chapter 12 is worth looking at now. He says, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, 
then I am strong. And you could, you could almost expect Paul to say, therefore, we do not lose heart. It's the same hope that carries us through this book. Let's read a few more verses in chapter 4. Verses 10 through 12 is where Paul takes a whole, talks a whole lot about death. And we need to understand this. He says, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Okay, when, when Paul wrote this, he hadn't actually died yet. Other apostles had. Uh, there had been martyrs who had given their lives at, at this point, but Paul hasn't died yet. So what is he talking about? He's talking about a cross-shaped life. In Galatians 6, Paul says that he bears the marks of Christ in his body. He associated his sufferings, his physical sufferings, with physical sufferings. And Philippians 3 talks about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. He writes about the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. He talks about being conformed to the death of Christ. All of this is how Paul can say, I die daily. Now let's back up and try to see this in the context of Paul's relationship with the Corinthians. Remember, they're, they're not really good friends with Paul at this point. They, they've been pushing back against his authority. They're challenging his authority. They're returning to some old covenant legalism stuff. And Paul writes them a letter that's chock full of mentions of his own sufferings. 2 Corinthians. Now giving the reason for this suffering, that the glory of God and the strength of God would be untarnished, unadulterated, and clearly seen by anyone who can, who can see. Now, this is a little bit of speculation, but I don't think it's too crazy to suggest that there were Corinthians who saw Paul's sufferings. His life looks terrible. And they would use that to bolster their case that Paul probably isn't a real apostle. He's certainly not a guy that I want to imitate, because if my life looks like that, that doesn't look like the life I want to lead. There have been many that take a position like this. There are people who will point to sufferings and think of them as evidence of a lack of blessing or a lack of anointing. It could be that this chapter was written with this kind of wrong-headed thinking in mind. Paul says, my suffering, rather than diminishing my authority or my usefulness for the gospel or anything like that, is the very thing that makes God's glory shine brighter and the very thing that brings life to you, by the way. The church was founded by Paul's sufferings. Most churches are founded on the sufferings of men of God who are seeking to share in the life of Jesus. Paul knew this about himself. He knew that while his suffering didn't, you know, it wasn't the thing that qualified himself as a minister, it certainly didn't disqualify anyone either. Remember in the first part of this chapter, we highlighted the essential importance of the message rather than the messenger. Paul had said emphatically, I don't preach myself. To preach himself would be to preach about the clay pot rather than the treasure inside. So since he had his priorities straight, he could write like this. Read on, verse 13. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Let me paraphrase this just a little bit. Paul is saying, I really and truly believe in the gospel, so I am really and truly preaching the real true gospel. I believe it, and I'm speaking what I believe. 
I'm speaking to you or writing to you the things that I actually really believe in my heart of hearts. Even though he's hard-pressed on every side, he still believes that God works life through death. He believes in resurrection. Even though there are times when he is perplexed, he is not in despair. He does not lose heart. Because Paul actually believes in a resurrection of the dead. Even though he and the other apostles are persecuted, this in no way meant that God had forsaken them. And though the world may strike them down, God's people cannot be destroyed. Paul believed all of this and so spoke it. And he's inviting the church to hear it from him. He's inviting the church to believe this. He's proclaiming this with confidence, knowing that the louder he gets with this message, the smaller he seems and the greater God seems. The gospel minimizes all misplaced pride and will always glorify God. Now, even Paul's description of what his life is like as a Christian, his own personal testimony, is evidence of grace on the undeserving and the weak. And this does indeed cause thanksgiving to abound, abound to the glory of God. Now, naturally, this is a place where we, where we kind of want to follow Paul's example. When we recognize, are we weak and heavy laden? Yes, we are weak, but he is strong. Have you trials and temptations? Again, yes, just like Paul. Are we aware as he was that this life is fragile and unimpressive like a jar made of mud? Yes. We don't want to follow Paul all the way to his light and momentary afflictions. They seem a little less than light and more than momentary. But we recognize that we have the treasure of the glory of God in this life. We have the same spirit of faith, verse 13. And we know, like Paul, that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus. Because of the resurrection, we do not lose heart. And this resurrection, when our faith shall be made sight, is not only a future event that must be imagined, it is the present reality of every spirit-filled believer. Look at the next verses, verse 16, the main one. It says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. The outward man, um, he, he's called this uh, the mortal flesh back in verse 11, uh, the earthen vessels in verse 7. He's talking about the same thing with all of these descriptions. Our weak, deteriorating bodies and the frustrating, chaotic lives we lead that are in a constant downward spiral. It doesn't actually take a whole lot of academic research to conclude that we're circling the drain. Uh, whether, it's our, whether it's our bodies deteriorating or our earthly treasures suffering from thieves and moth and rust or our achievements coming all to naught, we know that the outward man and that, that includes the, the entirety of our life, not just physical bodies. It's perishing. It's one of the lessons of the book of Ecclesiastes, right? It's the lesson of every hospital. It's the lesson of history and current events. It's the lesson we're taught when we work out and don't stretch. Or when you overdo the yard work and remember you're not 18. The outward man is perishing. But we do not lose heart. Why? Because the outward man isn't the full man. The life we see is not the fullness of life. It's not the whole picture. There is an inward man that is being renewed day by day. The earthen vessels aren't the only thing that are true. We have been marked by the glory of God that is eternal. We have been created in the image of God, not just our bodies, but body, soul, and spirit. 
There's the outward man and there's the inward man. There's mortal flesh and then there's eternal, immortal spirit. There's earthen vessels and there's also an infinite glory contained in them. Now, much of Scripture, and not just Corinthians, not just Paul's writings, not even just the New Testament, but a large portion of the, the entirety of Scripture is written in order to give the reader a perspective that includes the eternal. Christ came to reveal the Father before him, prophets, priests, kings, represented heavenly realities that eclipse our observable material world, surpassing it and catching it up into the heavens. The inward man is being renewed day by day. This is the work of the Spirit. While your heart and flesh may fail, he is in the midst of those struggles, leading you to a firm foundation. Now, it's wrong to think like a materialist, where only what you see is what matters. Paul says that's not what we look at. It's also wrong to see the eternal and the temporary as two completely different spheres that never touch, or the, the material and the immaterial as opposed to one another. One is entirely evil, one is entirely good. That's, that's not Christianity. What you end up with then is some a Gnostic sort of spirituality that's anti-physical, that never really touches the real world. No, Christianity is so much better than that. So much better than that. It's not that the physical world doesn't matter. It's not even that the sufferings in this physical world don't matter. They do. They do matter. But the temporary, the things of the earth, the light afflictions exist to serve the eternal, the heavenly, the glorious. The jars of clay, they're great jars, but they're, they're not to serve themselves. They exist to contain treasure. Look at verse 17. He says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The sufferings, the affliction, the things that identify this life as clay rather than diamond, as earth, earthenware pots rather than fine china, those things that remind us that, man, time flies and, and the, we all get out of here dead. Uh, you know, those, those reminders are for us. The weaknesses of this life are serving us. This is the process by which the inward man is being renewed day by day. The very things that are critical, that sorry, that the critical Corinthians might raise their eyebrows at are the things that are making Paul more like Jesus. The sufferings in his life that some would point as a disqualification are actually resources. They're tools in the hand of God making Christians look like Christ. It's not that the spiritual unseen matters and that the physical material world doesn't. It's just that this physical material world serves the spiritual and the weak, corruptible, painful, grief-soaked existence is one of the things that God has promised not to do away with, but to use and to elevate, to transform literally to resurrect. The light momentary affliction is working for us. It is producing in us an eternal weight of glory. We are being transformed day by day from glory to glory. Now this verse has what appears to be an extreme understatement and an extreme overstatement. Paul talks about a light affliction, which is but for a moment, or in some versions, a light momentary affliction. Okay, there are some afflictions that we could describe like that. And God surely uses uh, even small problems that we face throughout the day for his glory and our good. But to call 
Paul's afflictions, light and momentary, seems a bit insensitive. Uh, it's later in this book that Paul gives the comprehensive list of all of his sufferings. They don't seem light. This is from 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 28. It takes every single verse to list them. And if it sounds like Paul's bragging here a bit, it's because he is bragging. He says in verse 30 of chapter 11, If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. So again, he does so to give glory to God. But here's, here's the list of Paul's light momentary afflictions. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. I have questions about that one, but I don't have any of the answers. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, but who's keeping track? A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils of the sea. It's like a bad Dr. Seuss book that doesn't rhyme. It's in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst, in fastings, often in cold and nakedness, besides the other things which come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Light and momentary. Remember, these, these are the light afflictions. But for this to be anything other than a joke, the resurrection has to be at the forefront of the believer's mind. Paul has to really actually truly believe in the gospel that he's presenting. Remember, it was Jesus himself who said, do not fear the one who can only destroy the body. The destruction of the body, that's death, is not supposed to be a big deal for the Christian who has eternity in mind. Paul, calling all of this kind of suffering a small thing, seems strange unless you have the vision Paul did of an eternal weight of glory. Everything's small, everything is small when you put it next to something that's much larger than it. Now, I said there's an apparent understatement and an apparent overstatement. It seems like Paul is selling sufferings a bit short. And then next, in describing the glory that's being uh, made in us, that, that that work in us, he almost goes overboard. Not that you can go overboard in talking about the glory of God, but the way he talks about glory, it just seems to be reaching so far above any scope we can be comfortable with. Look at Paul's exaggerated language again here. The sufferings are not just working in us. It's not just working glory in us. It's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Uh, the words for far more and exceeding are the same word in Greek. And translators throughout history have said, that sounds dumb to just use the word, same word twice. We'll use a couple different ones to make it sound better. Paul didn't do that. He's just repeating the same word until you notice. Uh, and, and, and the word he uses for far more and exceeding is the word hy hyperbolin, where we get hyperbole from, which means it's an exaggerated statement. He's making the point that he is trying to, to, to stretch your mind here, to think of things larger than you'd normally think of. The light momentary affliction is working for us such a glory, the weight of this glory, the magnitude of this glory is comically large. It's an exaggeration of a hyperbole of an extremely oversized caricature of a very great glory. That's the kind of, that's how Paul's talking here. Are you seeing what he'd like to communicate? Yes, yeah, his life is difficult, so is yours. Christianity is difficult. There's persecution. There's, there's these times like he lists of suffering. Ministry is difficult. 
There's a spiritual warfare and a physical warfare. There's the sufferings and aging and complaining and plenty to worry about. And God's glory, which is ahead of us, God's glory, which is before us for us to fix our gaze on, turns all of that stuff to nothing. It blows it out of the water. It's not that being shipwrecked three times is something that just anyone would call light and momentary. But for someone with even a glimpse of the heavenly glory, for someone, for someone uh, who can even just imagine how long eternity is, the statement of Paul's isn't just wishful thinking, but the realest real and the truest true thing that we could understand. This is the understanding we're told to have. This is the understanding that Paul prays for us, that you'd be filled with the fullness of God, that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is the Christian's vision. It's not just on the here and now. We're not to have our eyes fixed on the jars of clay or the mortal flesh or the outward man. We're not to have our minds consumed with how hard-pressed we are or how perplexed or how persecuted. We have better things to see with the eyes of faith. Verse 18, it says, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, this is a great big problem for a lot of people. There's, there's a paradigm shift that's necessary to stop seeing things as the world sees and stop thinking as the world thinks. And just as, like Paul mentioned, these huge things as light and momentary, and we realize he must be using a different scale than we are, which is true. And without that scale, his descriptions can seem kind of ridiculous. Well, this statement, too, is a step too far unless the Spirit will give you insight. Paul says, we do not look at the things which are seen. That's hard. You know why? Because looking at things that are seen is sort of what looking is all about. To say we look at the things which are not seen is to say impossible things. It's not natural. No, it's, it's, it's supernatural. And that's the whole point of the gospel. This is, the central, this is central to Paul's entire theology. Please remember back, if you can, to 1 Corinthians 15 which is all about the resurrection of the dead, all about the miraculous power of God that changes everything in the created order by flipping it right side up in the resurrection of Jesus. In that chapter, it's Paul who says, if there is no resurrection, we Christians are the most pitiful bunch that's ever walked the earth. That's a paraphrase. Don't look it up. Um, in, the, in the world's eyes, using the world's metrics, Paul's life was an utter failure. And the Corinthians could look at Paul and all he had suffered and ask the natural question, what's the point? Without, well, without the resurrection, maybe there isn't one. Without the confident, unshakable faith in the existence of an inner man that is being transformed from glory to glory and renewed every day, then yeah, then Paul's life is pretty pitiful. But we do not look at the things which are seen. And that doesn't just mean we close our eyes to this world or its problems. We don't have our heads in the sand. It's not that we're looking at nothing. It's that we're looking toward something that is infinitely glorious. We are looking at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The gospel is anything but short-sighted. This book of 2 Corinthians, it's about ministry, it's about suffering, um, but it, it's, it's about more than any of that. It's, it's a book about hope. It's about a contagious, spirit-filled hope that is set on the eternal truths of heaven, on the eternal satisfaction that is found in Jesus himself. If you want evidence that the world is rough, that life is hard, that we're going downhill fast, you can find those truths in this chapter or just anywhere else in the world. 
you'll find that truth in Scripture. The gospel includes the truth that God became man and we killed him. We don't live in a garden anymore. There are thorns now, but that's not where the story ends. And it's not what we're to focus on. Those are things that we can see that are temporary. We see that within these earthen vessels, there is a glory that shows the excellence of the power of God. We see with the eyes of faith given to us that though our flesh is mortal, the life of Jesus may be manifested in it. We know that grace is sufficient, that strength is made perfect in this weakness, and that the proclamation of this grace causes thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. There is no affliction that can outlast the glory that's coming, the surpassing, exceeding, more than you can imagine, eternal weight of glory. This is being worked out in you. This is what you are being shaped into and prepared for. You're being transformed from glory to glory. The things seen are preparing you for what is, for now, unseen. We have this confidence. We have this hope. And so we do not lose heart. We do not grow weary in doing good. We do not drop our gaze onto the lesser things of this world that seem real just because you can see them. Instead, we look to the things which are unseen in hopes of the day when our faith shall be sight. Let's pray. Jesus, we rejoice in you. We rejoice in your faithfulness and long-suffering with us. We pray your mercy on your people. We pray that... Uh, as this text gives us so richly this, this hope to not lose heart, that we would be faithful in walking in these truths. We do not lose heart because you hold our hearts. Bless your church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Saints of God, you are sent.